Well, we are joining the story in progress. We are now in the second chapter of Joshua. Joshua is the leader in Israel who has replaced Moses. Moses has passed away. And Joshua is leading Israel into the land that God has given his people, Israel. They're east of the Jordan River right now in the story, and they are needing to cross the Jordan, headed west into what you can consider today as the modern state of Israel, where we know Israel to be on our modern-day maps. They're headed into that territory, and they must cross the Jordan River. Next week, we'll look at that. Chapter 3 is the amazing crossing of the Jordan, so we'll get into that next week. Before we get across the Jordan, we have this little story here about Rahab, tucked away in Joshua chapter 2. A very interesting story, and I trust that there's a lot that you'll glean from it today. But let's look at chapter, or, uh, verse 1 together. Chapter 2, verse 1. And as we just read this first verse, there's a lot of questions that arise. It says, Joshua 2, 1, Then Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came into the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Well, if we are conscious this morning and we are reading the Bible with functioning brains, there are a lot of questions you might have after just reading that first verse. For instance, uh, we don't know who these spies were. It just says, he sent two men as spies. We don't have their names. We don't know their exact identities. There is a rabbinic tradition among the rabbis in Judaism that the spies were Caleb and Phineas. Caleb, of course, was a spy before with Joshua. They were the two from the previous generation who were allowed to make it to the promised land. He was a faithful spy in the previous generation. It could be that it was him and Phineas. We don't know. We'll learn more about Phineas later. But we don't have the identity of these spies spelled out for us in the text. You might also wonder, what's Jericho? What's the city of Jericho? It just shows up here. Well, Jericho does show up a few times in the Torah, the book's preceding the book of Joshua. And for our purposes this morning, all you need to know, because we'll talk much more about Jericho later, all you need to know is that it was a prominent city, and it was in Israel's way. Israel was to go and possess the land, meaning they had to dispossess those who were already in the land. And so, it's a city that is in the way. <laughs> That's all you need to know. Jericho does come up about 50 times in the, New, in the Old Testament. And about half of those usages are in Joshua, so we'll learn a lot more about Jericho. We also see here, too, that it's Joshua himself sending the spies at the start of the verse. He's the one sending the spies. Remember, like I just mentioned, Joshua himself was once a spy. That was 40 years ago, and he learned a lot from that experience, I trust, as we do as we read the words of Scripture. And surely Joshua had some wisdom to share with these spies and had a word about integrity with them when it come to, came to spying out the land. And at this time, of course, Joshua didn't know how the siege of Jericho would go. If you're familiar with your Bible, you know that in a few chapters here, here we'll read about the fall of Jericho, the wall come, comes tumbling down. Well, Joshua didn't know that at this time, and so he just knows God says, go into the land, and Jericho's in the way. And so in accordance with good stewardship here, Joshua says, well, let's come up with a strategy. And to do that, we'll send a couple of spies ahead so they can map out the land. They can take notes and come back and tell us what they find. And I think right here, we can find an immediate point of application to our lives. 
There are lots of times when we're put in difficult situations, when we're put in situations where we know we are to follow the Lord even though it seems difficult, and we seek to be faithful stewards of what God has given us and move forward in obedience to God even when we don't know how it's all going to work out. That happens a lot in life, doesn't it? And sometimes God does just work a miracle like He will with Jericho, but in the meantime, Joshua sees it, of course, as his duty to plan wisely, and that's what's going on here. Now, perhaps the most obvious question about the context of verse 1 is, why did they go to a harlot's house? Isn't that weird? It just says it. Like, yeah, of course, where else would they go? That's quite interesting. It's fascinating that the text just simply says they went to a harlot's house. Well, we know that this provided them a safe stay. We glean that from the text. This was a place where they weren't threatened, they weren't harmed, and they ended up being safe. It says in our text that they lodged there. Now, the most likely explanation as to why they went to a harlot's house was because it wouldn't have been something outstanding for men to walk in there. In that day, people in that culture, in that city specifically, knew that Rahab was a harlot, and men were going in and out of that door all the time. And for spies who wanted to blend in, it wouldn't have stood out. That's about the most likely explanation that we have, but it just doesn't say. Rahab, of course, was a harlot. It's what the text says in plain language. She was a harlot. She was a prostitute. She was an immoral woman. This is not just a mere innkeeper. She wasn't a hotel manager. She was a harlot. She was an immoral woman. Yet we will also see in this text that God set this up. This was God's divine appointment that these two spies be found in this harlot's house. And as crazy as it is to us, this is exactly what God had planned. Now, I do want to mention one more thing before we finally get to verse 2. There is no evidence whatsoever that the spies engaged in immoral behavior here. Some people might jump to that conclusion, well, that's why they went to the harlot's house, is for exercising some immoral behavior. But there's no evidence whatsoever in the text. In fact, we have evidence to believe that they were living upright lives as they were there with Rahab. Well, let's pick up in verse 2 and just see where the story goes now. So, Joshua 2, verse 2. It was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they, they were from. It came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax, which she laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the road to the Jordan, to the fords, and as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. Well, interesting now, as a means of preservation, Rahab lied to her own people. She lied to preserve life. This is setting up a secluded conversation, and the verses that follow, we're going to be kind of a fly on the wall here with a private conversation between Rahab and the spies. But the author of the book of Joshua here has really made this dramatic, hasn't he? It's a dramatic scene, and you can see this playing out perhaps in your mind's eye like a movie. And now the scene has changed, and 
They're going to have a serious conversation. But before we get into that, let's consider what's going on here. The king of Jericho knew of the spies and he knew of Rahab. That's a fascinating element in this story. That's what actually sets up Rahab's infamous act, the fact that he knew that spies had come to spy out the land, trying to overtake Jericho. That caused him to send his messengers to Rahab and say, what's, what's going on here? It sets up this lie that she tells. And this lie was an act of preservation. She sought, of course, to spare the lives of the spies. If she would have told the truth and the spies would have been taken captive, perhaps killed, who knows what would have happened. She wanted to see their lives preserved. She wanted to preserve the lives of these two Israelites. But there's also some self-preservation here, too. Rahab herself didn't want to die. Can you imagine if she would have pointed out the men, well, yeah, they're in my home and we've been talking for a while. Do you think that the king's messengers would have just said, oh, okay, thanks, you stay here, have a good day, see you later? She probably would have faced some consequences too. And what we're about to read in the verses that follow is that she knows that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is going to grant them victory in Jericho. And she doesn't want herself, she doesn't want her family to fall under the wrath of God, and she's trying to do what she can to preserve her family's lives. Now, in this lie, with this motive, we do see something interesting, an attribute of loyalty in Rahab. She's loyal to her family. She wants to preserve her family. Perhaps the attribute of loyalty isn't something you expect from a pagan prostitute. But what we see in the life of Rahab is there's a lot of unexpected stuff going on with this pagan prostitute. And she was loyal to her family and wanted to see her family spared. Now, to add to the drama, look at verse 7 again with me. This is just adding to the overall drama. The men pursued the Israelites. They thought the Israelites were out on the road. So they pursued them, and after they went out of the city, it says, they shut the gate. The gate is closed. And as you're just reading this through, perhaps not knowing all the details that come, you're thinking, how on earth are these spies going to make it out of the city safe? They're trapped. Dramatic. This is good writing. This is good. All right, well, let's keep reading. Pick up in verse 8 with me. Now, before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how Yahweh, the Lord, dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now therefore, Please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's household. And give me a pledge of truth, and spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters with all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. Well, at the same time as Rahab is lying to her own city dwellers here, the other Jerichoans, however they would say that, as she was lying to them, she was also coming to faith, it seems. Rahab was coming to faith in Yahweh, 
the one true God, the God of Israel. And this act was an act of faith. Now this begs the question, so when she lied, was she acting out of self-preservation in the flesh, or was she acting out of faith? The answer is yes. The answer is a clear, resounding yes. It wasn't just one or the other. Here we see her testimony that she knew of God's victories. Look again at verse 10. She knew about the Red Sea being dried up before the Israelites. She knew about these kings of the Amorites who were slain by Israel because of God's working in them, God giving them the victory. And she also knew, according to her testimony here, that she needed to be reconciled to God. She's looking at these facts and saying, the one true God is empowering this nation to take over the people before them, and I need to be reconciled to Him, or otherwise I will fall under His wrath. She had a recognition of her need to be reconciled to the one true God of the universe. And so she was doing what she knew how to do in hiding people, deceiving others, and trying somehow to be reconciled to Yahweh. Doesn't this mirror so many of our experiences as we've come to know the Lord? When did you first know about the facts of God and the facts of the gospel? And then when did you first trust in the gospel? Put your trust in Jesus Christ. Some of us have a really hard time knowing the difference between the two. We're learning facts, just like Rahab was learning facts about Yahweh delivering His people and all these miraculous events that were taking place. She was learning all these facts, and it seems here as though she's now trusting in that God to save her, because she knows that what He's done in these other lands, He's going to do in her land. And this is often pretty messy when people come to know the Lord the one being drawn by God, the one who's being drawn by God to come to know Him, to come into relationship with Him, so often that person has so many bad notions, so many bad habits, manners of life, and that just kind of makes things messy. If we want clear-cut evidence of somebody being a wholesome, pure Christian person. You know what's happening, though, when someone has all these bad ways of life as they're coming to know God and as they're being drawn by the Father, there's also a spot of faith in there, isn't there? Because what is God doing but bringing that person to faith? And that little seed of faith is growing and it's going to bear fruit. This is God's business. This is God's work in the lives of His people. But isn't it so true of so many that as they come to faith, or we could say as we came to faith, not knowing all the right words, we don't know Christianese yet, not knowing all the right actions, not knowing all the commands that are given to us by God, that it just makes life kind of interesting. And this story of Rahab has really twisted a lot of people up because they look at it and say, well, she's lying. She's deceiving. And that's not what God's people are supposed to do. Well, she's also a harlot. That's not what God's people are supposed to do. <laughs> but we see God at work here, don't we? That's the point of this story. This is a divine appointment. How did these two spies end up in Rahab's house? Well, this is God's working. How did Rahab come to testify to the one true God and her need to be reconciled to Him? Well, that's God's working. And He works in the mess of your life. 
He works in the mess of our lives to bring glory to Himself. And there must have been a genuine faith here on the part of Rahab because what we're about to see, that's verse 14, I stopped just short of it. In verse 14, the two spies agree with Rahab, yeah, we're, we're going to promise to you that we'll keep you safe. And remember what the Israelites were commanded to do, they were commanded to destroy all the Canaanites, to drive them all out. Don't spare them, drive them out. But they're making an exception for Rahab and her household here, apparently because there's true faith. And she will become a proselyte in Israel. Well, her testimony here, where she says, again, verse 10, the mighty works that God has done, and she goes on to say, I mean, it's just so amazing, verse 11, the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. It sounds a lot like Deuteronomy chapter 4. Let me read to you Deuteronomy 4, 37 to 39. Perhaps Rahab had even heard this passage from the Torah. Deuteronomy 4.37 says, Because He, God, loved your fathers, therefore He chose their descendants after them, and He personally brought you from Egypt by His great power, driving out from before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in and to give you their land for an inheritance as it is today. Know therefore today and take it to your heart that the Lord, He is God in heaven above and on the earth below, there is no other. Sounds a lot like what Rahab was saying. Commentator Martin Woodstra, that's, I guess I, I just decided how I was going to pronounce his name. I didn't think about that beforehand. Woodstra, so from here on out, that's how I'm going to say his name. He said this about Rahab's testimony. In some ways, her words reflect clearly that she is just beginning to emerge from her pagan environment. Calling God the Lord your God, who is a God in heaven above and on the earth beneath, Rahab expresses a thought which is biblical, but similar utterances may be found also in pagan literature. She's doing what she knows how to testify to the goodness, the power, the strength of the one true God. She believed what was claimed about the Lord Yahweh. And through all of this, Rahab received a special promise. So let's pick up again in verse 14, and we'll go ahead and read to the end of the chapter. Joshua 2:14. So the men said to her, "Our life for yours, if you do not tell us this, or if you do not tell this business of ours. And it shall come about when the Lord gives us the land that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you." Verse 15. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall. Hey, that's convenient. Who needs a gate, right? (laughs) So that she was living on the wall. She said to them, go to the hill country so that the pursuers will not happen upon you and hide yourselves there for three days until the pursuers return. Then afterward, you may go on your way. The men said to her, we shall be free from this oath to you, which you have made, made us swear, unless... When we come into the land, you tie this cord of scarlet thread in the window through which you let us down and gather to yourself into the house your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's household. It shall come about that anyone who goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and we shall be free. But anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be free from the oath which you have made us swear. She said, according to your words, so be it. 
So she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and came to the hill country and remained there for three days until the pursuers returned. Now the pursuers had sought them all along the road, but had not found them. Then the two men returned and came down from the hill country and crossed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they related to him all that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, surely the Lord has given all the land into our hands. Moreover, all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before us. What a special promise Rahab received. What amazing providence that God spared his spies here. By Rahab's shrewdness, the men were able to escape. If you can imagine some of Rahab's background, I bet this wasn't her first rodeo, lowering people in and out of a window, right? And hiding people and deceiving people. And the men were joyful and bolstered in their faith. Her plan worked, and they were kept safe. I want to make a quick note here. It's true that the Lord didn't owe them that story, did He? He didn't owe them that extra confidence that the hearts of the people were melting away before them. Remember, that? that's what Rahab said. Rahab said, we've heard what's been going on with you, and we're scared. And that kind of gave them some more confidence. You can imagine, that gave them some confidence. If you've ever been in sports and you find out that the other team is scared of you, you're ready to roll. Yeah, let's do this. Well, the Lord didn't have to give them that kind of confidence, but He did of His grace. Because he had already told them, go into the land and I will give you victory. But there he gives them even a little more. And these men made a promise to Rahab. It was kindness in exchange for kindness that was promised. And this new convert, Rahab, was asking them for assurance. She says, I need something to hang on to. I need some sort of a sign. And they said, put a scarlet thread, take this scarlet thread and put it in your window. And it all happened as promised. I'm going to go ahead and give you the spoiler. Turn forward to chapter 6. Joshua chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 17. Joshua 6, 17. This is where Jericho falls. We're going to be here in a few weeks. And start with me at verse 17 of Joshua 6. It says, The city, Jericho, shall be under the ban. And we'll talk about that soon enough. It and all that is in it belongs to the Lord. Only... Rahab the harlot and all who are with her in the house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. They kept up their end of the deal. Drop down to verse 23. Same chapter, verse 23. It says, So the young men who were spies, the same two, went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all that she had. They also brought out all her relatives and placed them outside the camp of Israel. They burned the city with fire and all that was in it. Only the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. However, Rahab the harlot and her father's household and all that she had, Joshua spared. And she has lived in the midst of Israel to this day, for she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Isn't that amazing? Years later, they could say, you know, Rahab, you know, she lives on 4th Street. <laughs> she has an amazing story, and it was preserved right here in Scripture. She became an Israelite with her household. She joined God's nation. Well, this story is unique, and there is much for us to learn from this story, and I want to spend the rest of our time with some 
theological reflections. I want us to consider what this means for us theologically. One of the first questions that comes up, and I think it is most natural for this question to come up, though it isn't the most important question to ask, it's still natural, and that is, was Rahab right when she told the lie? This comes up all the time when you get the hypothetical scenarios of the Nazis at the door wanting to know where the Christians are in the house and yada, yada, yada. So we can ask the question, is it ever good for a Christian to tell a lie? Well, the answer is no. The answer is just simply no. It is never good for a believer to sin. Our desired ends never justify a sinful means. If we have a desired ends that God's people would dwell in peace, are we going to achieve that ends through sinful means? I don't think so. God has told us that which we should do, and we are to pursue righteousness. But at the same time, that's, that's not the point of this story. If we are getting so hung up on that, so caught up in that, and we want to figure that out down to a T, you're kind of missing the big picture of what God's doing here. I shouldn't say kind of, you are missing the big picture of what God is doing here. It's a necessary fact of the story, but it's not the point of the story. Well, before we consider that main point, some of you more theologically minded might follow up with this question. Okay, so it's not good to lie, we get that, but is God implicated when He uses sin? Because God used that lie, didn't He? God was very much involved in this whole situation. And it wasn't just that she told a lie. I mean, after all, she was a harlot and he used her. And her house probably wasn't a house of worship, at least not of true worship. And here God is using all of these elements to bring about his desired means. So is God implicated, is God guilty in any sense when he uses sin? Well, the answer to that is also a clear and simple no, he's not. His usage of sin doesn't make him party to the guilt of sin. His usage of sin does not make him party to the guilt of sin. And this is a, there's a theological term for this discussion called theodicy. And some of you who are more literature-minded might think, oh yeah, Homer wrote the Odyssey. No, that's not it. <laughs> or, or I could say, yeah, my, my wife drove here this morning in the Odyssey. <laughs> nah, but that's not the Honda Odyssey. It's theodicy, T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y, theodicy. And that's our belief that God is total, totally innocent of all evil in the world. God, who is the only good, who dwells in unapproachable light, absolutely pure, He is innocent of all of the evil that is in the world, even when He uses evil to accomplish His means. In the Ligonier devotional I read this week, one of them I read this week, Ligonier is a ministry started by R.C. Sproul, in that devotional, they talked about theodicy, and I just wanted to share these two sentences or three sentences with you. In that devotional, it says this, God can and does use evil to accomplish His will. And these are some important verse references you might want to jot down. 1 Kings 22, verse 23, Psalm 105, verses 23 to 25, God can and does use evil to accomplish His will. However, evil is never God's final purpose or goal. He ordains it for a greater good, namely our good and His glory. As the only transcendent one, God is able to do what He wishes outside, over, and within creation. God is able to do whatever He wishes outside, over, and within 
creation. He's never wrong. He's never guilty. He's never sinful. His involvement in creation as He's bringing all things toward redemption, that actually speaks of God's grace, not some supposed guilt. The fact that God's involved in our mess doesn't implicate Him for our mess, does it? But it's a great testimony to the grace of God that He would show up in our mess and bring us toward redemption in His great love. I think that's an amazing doctrine that we have, that God is not a God who is far off, but He's near, even near sinners, even among the sinners. So this is the big question now. Okay, why is this story even included? Here's the big question. What is Rahab's significance in the Bible? Why is this story here? Well, to begin to answer that question, let's look at the three times that Rahab is mentioned in the New Testament. The first is the first book of the Bible, one of the very first verse, or first book of the New Testament, rather, one of the first verses of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. And this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the line of Jesus Christ. We see Rahab first mentioned in the New Testament right here, Matthew chapter 1, and we'll start at verse 5. This is the part of your Bible that you're tempted to skip over. And here you're finding out why you shouldn't do that, all right? Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, it says, Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David, the king. Well, one of David's grandmothers is Rahab. Isn't that fascinating? You've read about Boaz in the Bible, the book of Ruth, that little book of Ruth? Where'd Boaz come from? Rahab. It's amazing. And they're all in the line of Jesus Christ. You think that's significant? You better believe it. This is incredibly significant for Rahab, that she would be one of the great, 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 great grandmothers of Jesus Christ. That's amazing. We also see Rahab mentioned in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31. This is just one verse. Hebrews eleven thirty-one. Look at her significance here. It says, By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. Hebrews chapter 11 details the faith of many Old Testament saints and what they did in, in faith, in service to God. And among all these big names that you'd recognize, Moses, Abraham, and the like, here's Rahab. Rahab the harlot. Notice that her identity as a harlot is still found here in the New Testament. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient because she had faith in Yahweh. She was spared from Yahweh's wrath. When Jericho was sieged, she was spared because of the faith that God was working in her. And then finally, James chapter 2, just the next book over, James chapter 2, verse 25. This is a third and final place where we see Rahab in the New Testament. And again, it's as an example of faith. James 2.25, it says, In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? What's this saying? Rahab worked out her faith. She had a fruitful faith that was developed in her by Yahweh, the God of Israel. He had 
plucked out a prostitute in Jericho, and her faith was evidenced by the way that she cared for the Lord's people and called out for reconciliation. She was fruitful in her faith. So considering those three passages in the New Testament, what is Rahab's significance in the Bible? Well, you could say this, she had faith. She was a woman who believed God. She trusted in God. And just like Abraham, her faith was credited to her as righteousness. She had faith and it was exercised in her welcoming the spies, seeking to protect God's people. And this is especially remarkable because what do you expect from a pagan prostitute? You expect a lot of sin, don't you? Here's what you don't expect. God to use her. Our God is the God of the unexpected, isn't He? He takes people and plucks them out by His will and calls them by His divine purpose and works His miracles in their hearts. You don't expect God to use her in His grand story of redemption, but there she is in the lineage of Jesus Christ. That is amazing. God uses messed up and broken people to accomplish His purposes, doesn't He? This is a common thread not only in the book of Joshua, but throughout the entire Bible. God uses a messed up and broken people. That's what you are. If you're a Christian here today, you can recognize that. We're messed up and broken people, and God uses us to accomplish His purposes. How did Jacob obtain his blessing? I mean, it was said before Jacob and Esau were born, the older will serve the younger. How did the younger obtain his position? It was through deceit, wasn't it? God's using a messed up and broken people to accomplish his purposes. How did forgiveness of sins enter into the world as a message of hope? It was through the greatest sin that's ever been committed, the killing of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Can you think of a sin that's worse than killing Jesus? And yet, it is through that wicked sin, that evil, that the blessing has come to us. It is through evil in the world, messed up and broken people, not even always redeemed. Sometimes they're redeemed, but they're not even always redeemed. God uses them to accomplish His purposes. Think of how God has used you. In those places that God has led you in ministry to serve other people or to speak a word of truth, how many times has it been done with totally pure motives? How many times has it, been, has it been done with totally pure thoughts? Never is the correct answer, right? We are so weak, as the song says, frail children of dust and feeble as frail. That is what we are. And guess what? God's using us. God shows up and God goes to work in our lives and touches people through us. The more legalistic, leaning people among us may be tempted to think, instead of Rahab, couldn't God have used a Proverbs 31 woman? Couldn't He have found just this really upright and pure woman to be a shining example in all ways to everybody who reads the Bible? Or you might be tempted to think, couldn't God have just left that story out? Doesn't that complicate things? Why didn't, couldn't God have just skipped that part? No! No. This is reality, folks. 
This is the world that we live in. God is using, using fallen people, sinful people, wicked people, evil, evil people, me- messed up, broken people, whatever adjectives you want to throw on, He's using us to accomplish His purposes in the world. Think of Rahab's family gathered there. Because remember, it wasn't just Rahab sitting in her house. Her family was coming. Her father, her mother, her brothers, her sister. What a crew that must have been. This isn't the Waltons. This wasn't like a leave it to beaver type of family here sitting around in Rahab's house. What a messed up group of people that had to be. And yet, they were the only ones that were going to be redeemed. I find that delightful. That God does this. That is absolutely delightful. They're looking around, and what did they have to hope in? They had a red cord hanging in the window, didn't they? Their house was the only house that was insured in Jericho, wasn't it? This is from uh, Charles Spurgeon's sermon on this passage. It's a longer quote, so it won't be on the screen, but I had had to read it to you. Coming here, Spurgeon said, The other afternoon, and walking down one of the back streets, I amused myself by observing how many houses were insured. Apparently, they had some sort of a signage that marked that they were insured. I noticed the marks of the different insurance companies. There was the sun on one with his bright face looking down upon us, as much as to say, there shall be no loss here. The globe, the star, the phoenix, all were were there as seals of safety. Now, there was only one house in Jericho that was insured, and that had for its symbol and mark of insurance a scarlet line tied by the window. What a mercy it is when houses are insured by the grace of God and dedicated to the Lord, the very houses and much more the inhabitants of those houses. That's a great word. These two men had told Rahab to put a scarlet thread in the window. They didn't say any other color. And I think every detail in Scripture is important, don't you? It was a scarlet cord. Now, we don't have the look into their minds as to why they said that. But remember, these men were Israelites, and for decades now, they've been remembering the Passover, haven't they? God instituted a certain meal, a special holiday that they would remember when God delivered them out of Egypt. And the Passover has all kinds of symbols in it, but it's to put their minds on that time when the Israelites had to go out and slaughter the best of their animals and put the blood on the doorpost that the wrath of God would pass over that house. And they told her to put a scarlet cord, the same color as blood. Put it on the window that the wrath of God will pass over your house. You know, I'm from central Missouri, and growing up, there were many instances by drill or otherwise that we had to find ourselves in some sort of a shelter, a tornado shelter, whether that's a basement or a hallway or a bathroom or an actual outdoor shelter, whatever it is. And a lot of times, outside of the the drills you do in school and stuff, a lot of times you just be awakened at 1, 2, 3 o'clock in the morning by a siren or a scanner, a weather scanner that a lot of people have in their homes. And the call is, go find safety. And so you gather together with your friends or family, whoever it is, and usually it's, you're tired and you're scared because even though there's a 99.9% chance nothing's going to happen, tornadoes do hit towns and do a lot of damage and people die. And you're sitting there and 
you're looking at each other, and you hear the sirens going off in the distance, and you want to make jokes just to kind of ease the tension, but deep down, you're, you're nervous. Well, imagine Rahab's family sitting there in her house. It was a lot like being in tornado shelter. They're looking around, and there's a chance that this might all fall through, and perhaps they wouldn't be spared. But they had a red cord in the window. And as they looked to that red cord, they could remember the promise of these Israelite men who said, more or less, God is going to use us to take care of you. You will be spared. And of course, in our day, we don't have to look upon a red cord. We don't have to look upon a doorpost, but we look to the cross of Jesus Christ, don't we? There where the blood of the Lamb was spilled. We see the mercy of God, and we know that we are protected, and we're in the middle of this crazy world. It's getting crazier by the day. And you might be tempted to think it might all fall through, and you might not be spared, but look to the cross of Jesus. Look to where the blood of your Savior was spilled. Trust in the protection that comes from God, not any kind of words of wishful thinking that you can conjure up in your own brain, but look to Jesus the author and finisher of our faith. We are broken and messed up people. We are just like Rahab's family sitting in her house. But we're spared from destruction just as they were. We look to God just as they did. We're protected by the same God now through the cross of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace in sparing us. We justly deserve wrath in our natural state because of our sin. But because of what Jesus Christ has done, we are now highly favored, exalted with Him in the heavenly places, utterly, totally cared for for all eternity. We have an unwavering hope because of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we ask that you would help us this week to continue to turn our eyes upon Jesus, to look to Him, the one who has secured for us total redemption, eternal salvation, and that we would be guided, led in thought and word and deed by your Holy Spirit who has sealed us until the ultimate day of redemption, that we would entrust ourselves over and over again to you, the God who deals with us graciously. Lord, thank you so much for your amazing work in our lives. Help us to live by faith, to walk by faith, because of what you have said, that we are yours. In Jesus' name, amen.